you need to do stuff to remind yourself who you are. And for me, psychedelics have been that thing that has reminded myself over and over again that I am not my anxiety <laughs> and I'm not my depression, that I'm just, that is just me coping with the what's underneath. And I need to really look and explore how to let things how to let things go and really move through them instead of holding them in. Hello and welcome back to the Mindful Belly Don't Eat Your Feelings podcast. I'm your host and health coach, Ellie Rome. So I am a former chemical engineer, gone holistic health and emotional eating coach after decades of my own binge eating disorder, sugar addiction. I ended up developing gut issues and thyroid issues and my body was basically breaking down. I was eating a bunch of things that I had no idea that were just completely wreaking havoc on my body. I went to a bunch of doctors, was just handed prescriptions for things. No one was asking why. And it wasn't until I discovered functional nutrition that completely changed my world. And when dove really deep into mindful eating and research around sugar addiction and breaking that. And when I was able to get to the other side of that, like my world opened up. I was no longer consumed by food and obsessed with restricting and binging and just constantly thinking about food all the time. And there was so much freedom in that. And so I just wanted to help other people do it because I know how toxic it felt and out of control I felt. And it was just so frustrating. And I gained a ton of weight and was feeling so much shame and guilt. And so that's what made me become a health coach and share this podcast to share with you the tools I use. And and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. It's probably one of my favorite interviews to date. But before we dive into that, I do want to share with y'all about the next Mindful Belly 21 Day Reset, which is coming up January 10th. This is one of my favorite things to lead throughout the year. It's a private reset group that is a holistic approach to wellness. So it's not just me handing you some 21 day diet and being like, good luck. No, I'm in this with you. And it's so much more than a diet. We, I do take you through a very practical paleo protocol that's really designed to make this work in your life. So I teach you how to dine out, how to travel. What do you do when you don't have any time and you need to just grab something really quick? Like we go through all of that, all of the scenarios so that you can take this with you. And every single person that I've taken through this protocol is like, Ellie, I want to keep going. And I'm like, yes, that is the point to want to keep going, that this is a lifestyle change. This isn't just a 21 day crash diet where you go back to the way you were. It's really learning the tools for lifestyle change. And also a, so much focused on the mindful eating piece, on the emotional eating piece, on understanding and becoming aware of patterns of why are you reaching for food? Why are you self-sabotaging? What is in place that's setting you up for that? And it's just so much more. And it is so much fun to be part of this group. I will be with you the entire way. There's no way you can fail. And the group is awesome. The people just resetting together, sharing recipes, sharing challenges and support and accountability. It's, it makes such a difference. And the January one is always amazing because there's just so much energy around the new year. So if this interests you, check it out at mindfulbelly.com backslash 21 day reset. It includes 21 days of coaching with me, but also we do live meditations, live fitness and yoga. You get access to all the recordings. And then we have group group sessions together so that if you need help navigating, if you need help meal planning, if you're going to a party and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do, we got you. We navigate everything. And so this is really about, again, giving you the tools to make this work in your life and to release perfection. And we focus on up-leveling. How can I make this better? How can I 
release that all or none mentality where I do perfect for two weeks and then I have the littlest slip and I just screw it binge like breaking free from that and learning how to make this sustainable so again if you're interested mindfulbelly.com backslash 21 day reset we start January 10th and you can always email me if you have questions my email is in the show notes all right so moving on through the episode. So this episode is an interview I had with Allie Waddell. She is a holistic wellness coach, speaker, and the co-founder at Aluma. Aluma is a ketamine infusion clinic here in Austin. And ketamine is such a powerful alternative medicine for depression, anxiety. It's being used for PTSD, OCD, eating disorders, and other chronic mental health issues. And it has been kind of exploding recently because of its efficacy. And it's just such a different rate of success versus anti-anxiety medications, SSRIs, depression medications, which often lead to worsening symptoms or having to get on other prescription drugs. And so it's really just mind-blowing what ketamine has been able to do for people. And this episode is all around Allie's journey through healing. She had a binge eating disorder herself, emotional eating, and she shares her journey, how she went from the lowest of low to radical self-love and really breaking free from that. And she shares all about how ketamine therapy entered her life and how it's benefited her and just how ketamine has personally transformed her relationship to her inner critic, to body image, and really the way she shows up in the world and the way she shows up to herself. And with that, I just want to say that there's a lot of stigma around psychedelics. And so I just invite you to have an open mind and that this can be such a healing tool. And I personally, myself have not tried ketamine yet. I do plan on doing sessions in the new year, especially to be able to share it with clients. Um, psychedelics in these past couple of years have made such a massive difference in my life. I have uncovered so many hidden traumas that I was not even able to access in my regular psyche. Um, that I had repressed certain memories and the, the psychedelics have really allowed those to come through and allowed me to explore trauma and heal and really feel into shame and feel into these often unwanted emotions, but allowing myself to find that radical compassion. And I, I'm finding the more, the deeper I dive in my own healing, the more I'm able to sit in these uncomfortable emotions and acceptance and find that compassion the more radical love I not only have for myself, but for other people. And it's just amazing what these can do. And so they're not for everybody. Um, but if you are struggling or you're really hitting walls, they may be something to look into, or especially if you, if you are kind of fa getting failed by the medical industry, the, this prescription drug route, um, which I've seen so many clients struggle with that. And so um, there's just so many alternatives for healing. And so this may be something that there's a reason you're listening to this today. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it sparks you today and then two years from now you're called to it. So I just hope to help expose what's available and you can take what you like and leave the rest. And in this episode, it's way more about just than ketamine. It's also Ali's so inspirational in her journey and just the tools she's used with meditation and breath and and self-love practices. So I hope that you gain so much from this episode. And if you want to connect with Allie, I put her information in the show notes. And also if you want to check out Aluma, and if you're not in Austin, there are ketamine clinics, a lot of places now in the United States. And so Allie gives tips on how to find like a good clinic 
and um and you can always connect with her and ask her ask her questions too so with that let's go to the show hi Allie how are you hello good I'm so glad to be here me too and I'd love to just start with a little bit about who you are and what you do yeah so my name is Allie Waddell. I've been in the wellness field, mostly in Austin for about the last 20 years. Um, I started in physical wellness. So as a personal trainer, and then I got into nutrition, became a, pers- a chef, went to culinary school, um, had a midlife crisis, early midlife crisis in my mid thirties. Um, and then got really delved into like mental health and mental wellness And then the, in about the last three years, I opened with my partner, a ketamine infusion clinic. That is an alternative mental health clinic in Austin to help people heal root cause trauma and deal with anxiety, depression, and PTSD, as well as OCD, um, eating disorders and other just general life improvement, um, biohacking tools. Wow. And so I'd love to dive into that. So like it's a windy road. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess to start off with what even is for people who have no idea what ketamine is or how it could be used and then how to get into the ketamine space. Of course. Yeah. So ketamine has a really interesting backstory. So it was actually developed during Vietnam as a battlefront anesthesia, because prior to that, like in world war two, Um, they were just using morphine. So if somebody got shot on the battlefield, they were hitting them with morphine. But what they came to find out is a lot of people were actually dying of morphine overdose on the battlefield because morphine suppresses your breathing and suppresses your heart rate. And so if you're bleeding out and then you get hit with morphine, you very easily could die. And so they decided to try to develop an anesthesia that wouldn't do those two things. And so they developed ketamine and it was called the, the buddy drug. And so it doesn't suppress your, your heart rate. It actually increases your heart rate and increases your blood pressure. So it's a really good battlefront anesthesia. Well, then about 20, 20 plus years ago, they were using it in the VA to treat burn victims So imagine somebody gets a blast and it's like covering a large percentage of their body. And every few days you have to go in and clean it. And as everybody says, they think it's actually the most painful thing that can happen to a human. Like it's just this really hard recovery process. But what they noticed is some at some VAs, they were treating their clients with, um, with opioids, like, um, like just standard opioids. And then some clients, they were using ketamine and they all of a sudden realized that the clients that they were using or the soldiers they were using ketamine with were not having PTSD. were not waking up with, with uh, like trauma dreams or were able to talk to the nurses about what happened to them. We're like actually processing emotions after the use of ketamine. And they were like, what in the world? (laughs) Wait, what's happening? And so most of the studies started in the VA, like a lot of our medical studies start. Um, And so now it's the most studied psychedelic in the world. It's the only currently fully legal psychedelic that people can use. Um, And now we've come to find out that it has this amazing wide range of uses for healing. it works relatively quickly. It's very safe and has almost zero side effects. Um, 
and it works in most people. So current studies show over 80% of clients um, see a reduction in their mental health symptoms, and that's only in the first month. And so really none of our other mental health medications that we currently have on the market work that well. Um, and so how did we get into it? So if you've been in wellness for a long time, I've talked to a lot of wellness people, a lot of us follow the same trajectory I did, which is like in your twenties, you're like, if you just work out, if you just work out, your life will be awesome and everything will be fine. And that will be great. And then, you know, you get like in your thirties and you're like, no, it's nutrition. So really if you just eat good and work out, then everything will be fine. And we can just be great. And then I think most people towards their late thirties or into their forties at some point realize it's actually mostly mental. Like really we have to deal with root cause trauma. We need to understand people's patternings. We need to understand our own ways of coping healthy and unhealthy and build our own toolboxes. And so I kind of made that path on myself. I'd had a real on my knees moment that we can go into um, in my late thirties, dealing with my own eating disorder. And I had started really unpacking like where that was coming from and what I needed to deal with. And then about five years ago, I met my partner who's a cardiac anesthesiologist and very similarly to me had had his own kind of mental health journey, although he's on the anxiety side. So, um, kind of trauma, it fits in a lot of times two camps, how people deal with trauma. You're either a suppressor or kind of a, you know, shun away or like, um, for me, it's like everything I can do not to feel my emotions. <laughs> so a lot of just unhealthy coping. So mine was food, booze, sex, overworking out, overactivity, never resting that kind of like, just do that. And then the other side of that, a lot of times is this kind of type a driven hyper control, hyper-focused, hyper-performer. And it's interesting, there's a lot of judgment between like the kind of ways people deal with trauma. And it's really just two sides of the same coin. Like every, your body and your nervous system feels a way to save yourself at some point. And that kind of comes to be your coping mechanism. And then at some point, that coping mechanism not only does not work, but it actually starts to drag you down. And so you actually have to understand when you can start to let things go. Um, and so we just happen to hit meet each other, I think very <laughs> serendipitously at the gym, of course, um, in this very beautiful way and at the kind of same part of our healing. And we had started to explore psychedelics together in a very mindful way. I had done a lot of psychedelics in my twenties in a non-mindful fun way, which I really enjoyed. Um, but me and him really started to explore like, what could we do together to not only heal ourselves, but to strengthen our relationship. And so in 2018, he started reading in his anesthesia magazine because ketamine is used in anesthesia all the time. Um, that it was starting to be used for mental health. And he was reading these stories. He was like, huh, that's so interesting. So he went to the first uh, national conference of the ASKP, which is the Association of Ketamine Providers. And it just happened to be here in Austin. And I think just like things that are supposed to happen, happen. He went and like saw the people, some people he knew and kind of heard things that really kind of 
got him excited and he came home and he said, if this works half as well as the studies are showing, it's going to change everything. And this is our way to get into psychedelics legally um, and really help a lot of people. And so he came home and said, we're opening the ketamine clinic. And I said, I have no idea (laughs) what that means (laughs) or how we're going to do that, but okay, I'm kind of on for the ride. And so that's been, we're going to celebrate our third year in February. Um, and we've had almost five, we've done almost 5,000 infusions in that time and helped hundreds of people literally transform their lives. And it's just a really amazing, you know, work that we get to do every day, um, us and our team that you can see people come in who have been struggling for years, if not decades and have really lost hope because they've tried everything, you know, like people have gone on medications, they've been in therapy, they've tried different therapy, they've tried different meds and nothing's really working. They feel really stuck and they feel very disempowered because the Western mental health um, segment is kind of set up for that. You know, you go in to see a psych and they say, oh, your synapses are broken (laughs) and you're not making the right neurotransmitters. And the only thing you can do is take this medication and good luck if it doesn't work or good luck if the side effects are so bad, they make you even more depressed because now not only are you depressed, but now you're overweight and you don't want to have sex. And so, yeah, you don't want to kill yourself, but you're definitely not living. Um, And so we have a lot of people that come from us in that place of kind of feeling broken and our goal and what we really try to reinforce is you are your own healer. Like we're just here to give you a tool and to create a very safe container where you feel safe to explore and be vulnerable and heal yourself. And the human amazing body that we're in has this unbelievable restorative patterns that we can actually heal ourselves. Like it's 100% possible. And so kind of reminding people that that's possible and trying to tap them into that inner healer that they've not listened to for a long time. And so that's kind of a very long winded story (laughs) of how I got here. (laughs) It's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I guess even when you said like, so he, your partner brought this home to you. So like, what was your experience with ketamine? Like your personal experience? I, none, zero. I had never done ketamine and I'd done a lot of drugs over my young party life. Um, and ketamine just was never a drug that I did. And so I ended up doing a series right when we opened. Cause I was like, well, I, <laughs> I need to do this if I'm going to understand how to support people going through this. And interestingly, I was in what I considered at the time, the best place I'd ever been mentally. Um, so the backstory with my mental health is I had, um, like my family overall was okay, but my father was a, was a drug addict growing up. He was on meth. Um, he was an insanely hard worker. He kind of used it as that. Um, and then my mom's a microbiologist. And so I have an artist dad and a microbiologist mom. So I have these two very <laughs> polar people. Um, it was also very combative in my house because he didn't get along well. So there was a lot of fighting. Um, and in that space, I was kind of the bright spot. And so the, the role that I filled in my family was everybody else was very kind of angry a lot. And there was a lot of 
that kind of energy. And so what my nervous system and what my kind of personality turned into was the happy kid. Always be happy, always be easy. Don't make things harder for people. You know, luckily, you know, my dad being as creative as he was, I had a lot of um, creative outlets and was able to kind of move into the artistic side of myself. But I was always kind of this odd kid that never really fit in. And I wore crazy clothes, (laughs) but I was really joyous (laughs) most of the time. Um, But what that actually the programming that I've had to work on was I really was taught that bad emotions were not okay. So I really never allowed myself to feel sad. I really never allowed myself to feel angry. And if I did, it was by myself in secret. And very early on, I coped with sugar. So that was something my mom was like very controlling of our house and our food. So, I mean, I was born in 1979. I grew up in the 80s. And so, I mean, we did not have sugar sugar cereal. We never had soda. We, I mean, we only had wheat bread, which at the time felt like, oh my God, what is, (laughs) why am I being so neglected? Um, And I would go to friends' houses and like gorge myself. Like somebody had like Fruit Loops or something. I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) What kind of amazing world are we living in? You have Pop-Tarts. I mean, it was just like, it was, it felt like unbelievable. And then the other interesting thing is my dad also has a sweet tooth. And so my dad, when we would go, like I would go to work with him, we would stop at 7-Eleven and he would let me get Slurpees and candy. And so it was this very weird, I never had a good balance with food in my life because I had this very strict regimented, these are bad foods also grew up with a mom with body dysmorphia who was always tiny, but from the earliest memory and still to this day, as she's almost 70, I'm too fat, my stomach, like breaking herself down. And so I think that programming really got put in there as well. Um, I was a string bean. I was like (laughs) a goal. I mean, I was so tall and so skinny and had like no lady parts. <laughs> just like a board. And I was a swimmer. Um, and so how that kind of translated was my mom ended up leaving when I was 13. And I internalized a lot of that anger and rage, I think, and in, internalized it and, and kind of forced it on myself, you know, and I noticed that I coped with food, but I was so skinny, it didn't really matter. You know, like, I swam all the time. And so I was super active. And then my metabolism was like, you know, a hummingbird. (laughs) And so, um, but I know I coped with food and then I went to college and I started drinking all the time and I started eat, I could eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And I ended up gaining 50 pounds in a semester, (laughs) which going from a size four to a 14 in six months at 18, 19 was like crazy, you know, just traumatic really for me. Like I didn't really understand what was happening and I was in a really bad mental place. Um, and then I started working out and it changed my head. You know, it really felt like this magic, (laughs) this mat, like I found the gym and I was like, "Ah," a place where I felt safe, a place where I could feel strong, Um, but I still had a hard time balancing the nutrition part, but again, I was so young 
my body bounced back really quickly because I was a baby. (laughs) Um, but I still hadn't really dealt with the root cause of what was going on. And, um, not soon after I was, you know, my senior year of college, what ended up happening, I was gotten an abusive relationship with a man and he really broke me down, you know, especially body image wise, just always making comments and just kind of really terrible stuff. And, you know, it was very emotional, you know, psychological, um, abuse. And that is when my eating disorder started. So I started binging and purging when I was 21, which is relatively late. Most people don't start bulimia in their twenties. It's usually, usually in your teens. Um, but I was felt so out of control. It was the only thing that I could control. And that went on until I was 35 probably. And the most interesting thing about having an eating disorder was the fact that you have to reconcile that you are an amazing liar because in that 15 years, not one person ever found out. I got married to somebody. I lived with somebody. I would travel with my family and nobody ever knew. And like, still to this day, reconciling the fact that I have that, like I have the ability to hide so well that nobody knows what's happening with me is something that I still work through because it's, it's a hard thing to, to kind of come, come around on. Um, and so, but when, and then I went to culinary school with an eating disorder. And if I could suggest one thing for somebody who has, (laughs) who has bulimia, don't go to culinary school. It's not a healthy environment to live in, to just live surrounded by as much food, good food as possible was, was really hard. And I had moved in, in Texas, in Austin, I was like, so plugged in and I had my people and my gym and everything. And I got divorced, gave it all up, packed my car and moved to California by myself. And so I moved in a place where I didn't, I was broke really. I like living off my um, savings. I didn't have a gym. I didn't have people like it, like was every trigger, every stress trigger you could have. I had it all at once. And then I was set in a place with just like smorgasbord, literally three times a day of like food and desserts. And it was like, so it, it took me, took me down, but it was the thing that I need. I think I really, that was kind of my rock bottom is that I needed to get there until I just really realized, like, I have to deal with this because I think a lot of people, no matter what your trauma is, you, you have this delusion that you can heal yourself in secret in the background that somehow, you're just going to read the next book or go to the next class or do the next course or listen to the right thing. And next week you're going to start and then it'll all be better. And then it'll be better. And then nobody (laughs) will have needed to know. And it will just be a thing that happened to you when you were young and you'll just be better. And um, I read the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown. My mom sent it to me and it really was, that was kind of the, the key that started to unlock stuff because I had an on my knees moment that I said, I'm either going to kill myself 
or this is, I can't do this. This is not, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this lie and this sham anymore. And in that book, it just is really about like, you cannot heal in the dark. Like you have to speak your truth. You have to own in order to move forward and to move forward powerfully. The only way to do that is to own it and walk into the darkness and just know that everybody goes through it and that you will stand as an example. And that felt impossible, you know, but at some point I opened my mouth and told the guy I was dating. And then interestingly, he goes, I knew something was going on. And it's so crazy because I didn't know it was that. And that seems like for him, it was interesting. And most doesn't, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, why wouldn't you tell me? You know, and for me, it felt like everything because the lie that your shame tells you is that you're going to be disowned and nobody, I mean, you are going to, this is going to take you down. And that was my biggest fear. You know, I've been in the fitness industry, helping people for 15 years at that point. Like, what are people going to think? Like, everybody's going to think I'm a, I'm a sham like that. How, how am I supposed to help people if I can't even get my shit together? So I had really started working on that and actually mushrooms had helped me a lot with reconnecting to myself. And that was, that's the core fundamental. My, all, a lot of my stuff stems from my underlying belief that I'm not worthy. And I think a lot of, a lot of women, especially have that story that they're not worthy, that they're not good enough. And um, mine personally comes from a lot of abandonment issues. And so that's kind of root cause what I, what I continue to work through. Yeah. Thank you for all of this, Allie. This is so powerful. And what do you think, even with the mushrooms, like, how'd you even know to explore that? Like, what were the tools leading up once you revealed that to your, your boyfriend at the time? Like, what were the steps to bring yourself out of that? Um, to be honest with you, just telling somebody actually <laughs> let off the pressure valve a lot. Like it's amazing just speaking your truth, how much not having that background pressure relaxes your reaction to things. Like it really, knowing it's a secret, you just heart, there's so much energy in holding that. Um, you're so much more likely to have, tr to have triggers that kind of force you into unhealthy behavior. But mine kind of started with, I did a lot of reading. I got obsessive about Brene Brown and then I went to therapy. So I went to a therapist, um, and she wasn't a specific like eating disorder therapist, but she was just a really lovely person, um, that kind of helped me work through, a lot of my belief system that I was kind of working on. And then, you know, one of the big things was I got really tapped back into who I was because that's another thing that tends to happen when we keep secrets is you, you kind of start to untether yourself from who your core is. And so meditation and a lot of journaling helped with that is like getting really clear about what I wanted and what I wanted for my life and who I was and who, you know, what are the, what are kind of the big overarching themes that I was interested in creating 
And I had to just get real honest with myself. And for most people, you don't make great decisions when you're in a bad headspace. So I'd gotten myself in a relationship that wasn't the right fit for me. I was living in a place that I knew I wasn't the right, it wasn't the right fit for me. Like I had, I had this entire life that I felt really guilty that I wasn't grateful for because I kept thinking like anybody else would be so happy to live in Sonoma and like work at in food startups and like live in this beautiful wine country and have this really nice guy who wants to marry you and have a house, you know, like I had a life that on the outside looked really nice. And I felt very guilty that I wasn't happy. I felt like I was being ungrateful, but the reality was it was not in alignment with who I really wanted to be. And I, I was trying to make it work. And so I had to kind of make it, I made a giant life change and like, after coming back to Austin for my birthday, I was like, <laughs> the universe, I always laugh because I feel like the universe like first like taps you on the shoulder and it's like, hey, hey. And then it maybe like pushes you and then it hits you up the side of the head with a sledgehammer if you don't like continue <laughs> to listen to it. And so I felt like I came back for my birthday and the universe like had, I had all these reasons of why I couldn't move back to Austin. And the universe is like, okay, here's your answer. And here's your answer. And here's your answer. And here's your answer. So what are you going to tell me now? And so I basically moved back and quit my job and broke up with my fiance and packed a van and moved back in a week. Like it, I'm, like it kind of was the domino that, that got me back into alignment. And then it feels like when you're in alignment, things come easy. And I just remember in my previous life in California, I remember my mom, I had this idea that I had to work really hard at everything. And my mom said, well, maybe it's not all supposed to be hard, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just kind of that realization that, that I was just so far out of alignment. And so that was really helpful for me. I think writing for me has been super, super transformative. So I think that's something that's really accessible to people that it feels silly. (laughs) It's like, what is this going to (laughs) do? But it really can help, especially if you're a head case, like, especially if you aren't good at like talking through your feelings, writing through your feelings is a lot easier and nobody needs to read it, which means you can just ramble. Yeah. Well, thank you for this. And, and I guess for, for anyone on this path too, you mentioned like, so before ketamine, the like mushrooms being mm-hmm. very therapeutic for you, how, and that's, um, can, yeah, a lot of people are very new to thinking about that as a therapy. And so how did yeah. that, how did the mushrooms that like psilocybin help you? What shifted? Yeah, I think most psychedelics are really good at kind of, again, tapping you back into that core source. I think for many people who live kind of with a lot of trauma and shame, it's that disconnection with self that really needs to be healed before you can really connect with anybody else. Um, And so I think, uh, well, I know that that psilocybin really helped me with that. So I know that when I would do it and I would do it mindfully and I would set an intention and I would go in, it would allow me, it would remind me, it would remind me who I was. And that's kind of how I view healing in general. I think healing is an act of remembrance. I think we are whole. I think we are beautiful, capable people 
But I think after years and decades of trauma and coping, we just forget, like we kind of lose it. And so you need to do these acts, whatever they are, go out into the woods, you know, whether it's take mushrooms, whether it's go on retreats, you need to do stuff to remind yourself who you are. And for me, psychedelics have been that thing that has reminded myself over and over again that I am not my anxiety (laughs) and I'm not my depression, that I'm just, that is just me coping with the what's underneath and I need to really look and explore how to let things, how to let things go and really move through them instead of holding them in. Because for me, that was a lot of it. I just held so much stuff in, you know, I really didn't ever allow people to know what was going on with me, even though I was an open book in a lot of interesting ways when it came to my big stuff. especially with people I love. It was way more easy for me to go and tell strangers, get on a podcast, do whatever, and tell strangers all of my garbage (laughs) than it would be for me to tell my partner or my parents. Um, And I think that's that's actually very normal, especially for extroverts. (laughs) Totally, I feel that. And what do you think for you? Like, what do you think, why why do you think that is to be able to be, to share with strangers versus intimate people? Uh, I think uh, vulnerability with strangers feels much safer because the, the loss of that relationship, there is not really one. And so if somebody rejected me that I didn't know, I'd be like, well, I don't care. Cause I really don't care <laughs> a lot of times. Um, but for somebody close to me, it's interesting. I don't regulate myself, or this is a part of that. I don't regulate myself around the general public. Like I'm very out there. I kind of say and do whatever I want, but I orchestrate who I am to the people I love. Very controlling, controlled because I have such, it's again, it goes back to root cause, which is, which is abandonment. I have huge abandonment issues, which stem from mostly my mother you know, and so when the person that was, when brought you into this world decided to leave and decides to leave, it cuts a core, you know, a real significant cord in your life that, that takes me still is something that I work through, you know, is, is something that I have to reconcile with, you know, and so I think that's why it's always been really hard for me to share what's really going on with those closest thank you for that of course and I'm I'm wondering too with like so your shift with binge eating when did you like how did you I guess navigate stopping reaching for food for to cope or I wouldn't say I completely have stopped I mean I mean it still is something I have to be mindful of like if I get in hyper stressful times it is my number one coping mechanism especially I stopped drinking about five years ago or I've completely completely changed my relationship with alcohol. And I was a heavy party drinker, like drinking three to four nights a week, easy, you know, knocking back a lot. Um, and it was just normal like that. It was completely normalized, especially in the fitness industry, the partying, <laughs> we partied a lot. Um, and so, especially when I lost that coping mechanism, I didn't go right back. I mean, I still, I still, it's still something that I have to be mindful of. Um, 
I think what changed in general was I built a toolkit that was very helpful for me. So I have kind of some tools that I can use when I notice that that's my instinct. Number one is being aware <laughs> and being aware of what triggers it. Like if I'm tired, the likelihood that I'll binge eat grows by 90%. Me too. <laughs> like, yeah. like if I'm not sleeping, first thing my brain is like, you know what is good? Sugar. And if you have sugar and caffeine together, we will be super awesome. <laughs> um, I also can't, I also gave up caffeine, which has been like almost as hard as everything else. Um, and so I think the awareness was the first thing that was really helpful is like just being aware of like what causes it stress number one um and then sleep is my other really big one um and then i do kind of one thing i do and i've always done this is kind of live i make sure that my house is like not a place that binging would be easy and so i really people People may think that that's a little too controlling, but it just makes it easier for me because I'm really, I'm a visual eater. So if I see something, my brain's like, you should eat. That. <laughs> so I basically created what I call a no fail environment. So I just, I don't really have anything bad in my house. I've got to say though, when I started dating my partner, he has two teenage, I have now two teenage stepsons. And so that has added a layer of complexity to this. It's actually been really good for my growth because I actually have to have stuff in that we have stuff in the house that they eat that I would normally binge on. And it actually has increased my ability to kind of change that behavior because I used to be insanely hyper strict about it, like on kind of a really compulsive level um, with everything. Ketamine is the thing that helped with that. Like I've been able to kind of lower my control issues around food immensely through ketamine. Um, just not feeling like I have to be so hyper-focused on like making sure that everything is perfect, which I think gives me a little better balance. Um, it definitely gives me a better balance than I used to. So I think those are kind of the main things. So my kind of toolbox is I have like three things that I can do before I snack. <laughs> not before I snack, but I just try to be more mindful about it. So number one, if I feel like I really need, if I want to go get something, I have to, I have to write for five minutes. A lot of times if I just write, I'm actually feeling something, but because I'm such a slow emotional processor, I don't actually realize I I'm feeling it. My nervous system does. <laughs> so my nervous system realizes I feel it. So I can write, I can do breath work or I can walk. Like those are kind of my three things that I'm like, or I can drink a big glass of water because sometimes I'm just thirsty and not really hungry, but I'm just like, I need something in my mouth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's kind of like really basic things, but those kind of having those four things where it's like, okay, are you really hungry or are you emotionally avoiding something? <laughs> so like when I have to write things for work, like write big documents, that's very hard for my brain mentally. And so as soon as I start writing, I'm like, I should get some chips. <laughs> no, I don't really want chips. I just don't want to write a blog. <laughs> so it's kind of funny things like that. Yeah. Oh, I have the same like compulsion or like the sitting to do a task. I'm just like, oh, let's go get something to eat. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure this will be better if I had grapes. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, this is perfect. And so, yeah, I want to talk, I guess, dive really into the ketamine space. So, oh, yeah. So you as, so you mentioned you were already like on a, like a higher point when mm-hmm. you got the ketamine. So um, for, I'd love to start with that. Just what, so what has it done for you personally? Um, yeah, it's been, it was quite the ride. So that was three years ago. So you do a series of six infusions, typically over about four to six weeks. So I went in once a week for six weeks. Um, and you started a relatively low dose. I had a lot of psychedelic experience, so I wasn't really worried about kind of what it was going to be like, cause I had done psychedelics enough, but it is so different <laughs> than any other psychedelic. So it is a dissociative or that's kind of the classification that they put it in. And so it's more like you're in a lucid dream. So you have an eye mask on, you have an IV on, you're in there for about 60 minutes your connection to time really can fluctuate. So sometimes it feels like you're in there for five minutes. Sometimes it feels like you were in there for seven years. <laughs> you wake up, you're like, where was I? Um, and for me, there was a lot of interesting takeaways. First off, it's an emotional unpacker. So being an emotional suppressor, this is an amazing tool for me because it just basically pulls everything up to the top, which is super uncomfortable and I hate it, I hate it a lot, but I know it's actually what needs to happen. So I actually cried every day for a week between my second infusion and my third infusion. And it wasn't anything specific. I think it was just decades of grief and sadness and fear and all kinds of things. And because I know myself well enough, I knew that that's what was happening. So I did a lot of journaling and a lot of meditating and kind of really allowed things to come up. Um, I would say my biggest, there's a few big takeaways. The biggest takeaway is I have been, I have had a really mean inner voice most of my life. I nicknamed her Kayla so that I could kind of yell at her when she was being mean to me. Um, But she was pretty cruel, especially when I was young. She was actually very cruel. But then after about the last, uh, after kind of my on my knees moment, I had done so much work that I made her a lot kinder. Like she wasn't as, she wasn't cussing at me. She was more just telling me it was worthless in kinder ways. Um, but after six infusions, she went away. And it really created this very interesting vacuum in my life where I had convinced myself for decades that she was my intrinsic motivation. That that unworthiness that she spoke from was really why I was showing up because I felt like I needed to prove myself that I felt like I wasn't enough, that I felt like, you know, like I had to work harder than everybody, that I needed to do more, that I need to be kind of the dancing monkey, that I need, you know, like I needed to be this person. And when she went away, it really did kind of suck me into a space of like, oh, who am I and what am I going to do with my life? Like it really kind of created an existential, not a crisis, but a moment to really take a good look again at like, why, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? and What am I doing exactly? And the process of rebuilding that took me about six months of real deep integration work with a coach and my own kind of tools um, to understand, like, how do you rebuild from a place of wholeness? Um, And what that looked like in the everyday was my, my body dysmorphia basically disappeared in a day, which, which is like, 
for somebody who's had it so bad for their whole life, it is like the weird, <laughs> it oh, is yeah. so weird. Like I, I remember the first time I went bathing suit shopping, cause I think I did that in the spring and then I went bathing suit shopping, like, you know, a few months later. And that always is like, I know. And everybody thinks it's crazy. Cause they're like, you work out all the time. Why don't you? I was like, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Still painful for all of us, for most of us. I just remember, I remember the funniest thing. I went into this bathing suit shop and I tried on this bathing suit. And the first thing my brain said is like, why did they cut this? The whoever made this suit is ridiculous because they made it so weird that it doesn't fit me. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me. Like it was like this crazy thing. Like it was like, oh my God, they cut these bottoms in this strange way that they don't work. Like, like, and it was all about the bathing suit and nothing to do with me being chunky like or my ass being weird shaped or whatever and it was just this like hilarious aha moment I was like huh wow isn't that so interesting that I don't have to do the like I don't have to do that and that has improved the one thing that really improved is me and Ken have always had this like really I'm not kidding magical relationship but it made it even stronger because my body image interfered with our emotional life so much because for me and a lot of people who struggle with body it's not really the weight like it has nothing to do with the weight it's like how I how I would feel in my body so my weight would fluctuate two pounds three pounds really you actually can't (laughs) tell but in my mind I could tell and then I would feel weird. And so then I'm not being as open with him. And then our sex is getting off, you know, and he knew something was wrong and he didn't want to say anything. You know, it's like this whole, now we're playing this uncommunicated dance around like me knowing that, you know, then me thinking like, oh, is he looking at this? And then this is, and then I can't really get in that position because this rolls over, you know, it's like, and he doesn't give a, <laughs> he's like, there's a naked girl <laughs> that I really like. This is awesome. <laughs> like he, he actually likes me larger than, you know, than I was when we met, which was like pretty, pretty lean. He's like, I like, like you with meat. Like, I like that. I think you look beautiful. He thinks I look beautiful no matter what. Um, and so that was super helpful for me. So like the body image thing and how much that ties into kind of how I show up every day and feel secure and that like internalized confidence has been really helpful um in everything and so that's that's kind of the big stuff I also realized I was one of my funnier times in ketamine was you do realize like like literally I'm in the middle and it goes you do realize that getting mad at yourself for being mean to yourself is against is, is not really the point, right? So you're being an asshole to yourself for being an asshole to yourself is kind of like this hilarious game. And I like laughed out loud. I was like, that's true. And so I've, I mean, like, so that stopped. Like I usually, I don't talk negative to myself, like kind of these big core things that had always been something I never thought I'd be able to do better at. It's really shifted that. And that's been three years. And so I did a series of six and then I go in, roughly about once a quarter to do a booster infusion, sometimes a little longer. I went like six months during COVID. That was probably a little too long, (laughs) but, 
but it's like anything else. It's just really good for stress regulation. And so when I feel myself starting to cope with unhealthiness, I know it's probably time to do an infusion or to do psychedelics in general, but ketamine is really helpful um, for me specifically. Mm. This is so helpful. And and just like how freeing that must be to not have like that self-critic, which is like, can be so dominating. And then the body dysmorphia stuff, like I still deal with that even just, yeah. yeah. For that not to even be a factor, it's like, whoa, the brain space the how I'd show up like what like that and it's getting better but it's still there yeah yeah and I I will say like it's not it's it it comes back a teensy bit but it really like it is nothing compared to what it what it used to be and it allow it gives me the ability to have grace with myself which I've never been able to do like like there are just times that are super busy that I'm not going to be able to be as diligent and to like stay on all of my eating and working out the way I did when I was single, had no kids and didn't really have a business. I mean, it's like when I was a coach by myself and had no children, I had all the time in the world to be at the gym for three hours and, you know, go to yoga and do breath work and sit in the sauna. Like, you know, it's like, but that's not my life. And that's okay, you know, and if I'm going to weigh four pounds more, everything will be, (laughs) everything will be fine. Like, I don't have to be like weird about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like so much of even that voice and the criticism is what fuels the bit. Like, I know for myself and people I work with, like that alone just fuels more binging, like Mm. for the control in the moment. But then it's just like when tired stress is just like deep binge and then oh yeah oh yeah then you're just sitting in your shame hole (laughs) in your shame hole oh man and so i love to know like for anyone who's interested in ketamine like what even how is it working in the brain what how is it doing what it's doing yeah so they of course this is a continuously studied thing that they're continuing to research but there's some kind of core fundamentals that they think is happening one neurologically it's very fascinating so it basically turns on all your neural pathways all at once so after years and decades of just being a human especially if you have trauma stress depression anxiety parts of your brain literally start to atrophy and that's because you don't use them and so our brain is very efficient and so it just shuts off systems that are not getting used um and this is how this is one of the factors in how we get stuck in rumination loops. So we, as we're just such pattern driven animals. And so we're really good at becoming efficient, especially our brain at thinking in patterns that we're used to thinking. So we just kind of, and everybody's been in there. And as much as you want to think your way around that, and you can over time with tools, it's just challenging Um, And so, but what ketamine does is turn on all your neural pathways and create crazy neuroplasticity for a window of about 36 hours. So not only can you have these big aha moments in the session, so you have this 
a lot of times you'll have kind of an out of body experience or you'll become the observer of your life and you can kind of see things from this completely different angle. And so it allows you to think through processes in a different way. And then using coaching or therapy, then you can start to work into those new thought patterns. And so that is allowing you to break these rumination cycles or patternings that you're not really liking. So that's why it's really good with OCD, eating disorders, anything, um, alcoholism. It's amazing for all of these things that are kind of these patterned behaviors that are trauma triggered pattern behaviors. And so then it goes down to core fundamental trauma. And so that's the other thing. It kind of allows you to really look at your trauma from a third party perspective so that you can gain a new relationship with it and change your narrative around it. Um, which is really, you know, people need to understand that you're creating this life that you're living in and you're the narrator and the director and the actor. <laughs> and so you ha- you're playing a role based on all these things that have happened to you. And you actually have the ability to change that. You can decide that you're going to be a different character in your in your play, and you can change how you're interacting with what has happened to you and what is going to happen to you. And ketamine will allow you to do that in a simpler way so that you can see it, um, which I think is really helpful for people, because once you see that and really embody and understand that, it makes everything a lot <laughs> A lot less heavy, I think, because then it's like, oh, I'm in control of this and I can do this and I can change things. Um, and so those are kind of, and then there definitely is a spiritual aspect as well. I would say almost all of our clients um, feel a connection to source, whether you want to call that God or universe or source um, and a deep connection with yourself and with others. And so especially after this last two years of disconnection, I think people are just craving connection and are starting to, I think a lot of people's hope has faded considerably. And hope is the idea of not only can your life be better, but that you can make it such. And I think with everything that's gone on in the last few years, I think people have gotten really nervous that maybe that's not true anymore. And so I, I think it really allows people to connect deeper with their sense of hope and their sense of gratitude and connection with kind of the universe at large. Um, and remember that we're all much more similar than we are different and that we, we have the ability to kind of make things better. So those are kind of the core, core ways it works. Beautiful. And for someone who, I guess, is there intention setting around it? Like do you go in and get like an intention or is it just kind of? Yeah, so there's a few, uh, we have two different um, kind of pathways you can follow. Sorry, my cat has <laughs> decided she would like to join us. Um, you can either do what's called self-guided. So that's most clients, that's people on the higher functioning spectrum. You know, you're doing relatively well. You have some tools, you kind of understand yourself and your trauma. Um, and so you come in, um, we're set up like a, fancy med spa, you're in a private room, you're monitored by a trained paramedic at all times. They're there to hold space and make sure that you feel safe and also to monitor you medically. Um, They're not going to do therapy with you, but they will, we do start with a meditation. And then we always suggest 
setting an intention and setting kind of a large intention. So I always think like, what are three things you want to create more of in your life? And what are three things that you would like to let go of? And kind of think of these big boxes of what are the things that have happened throughout your life that you kind of are core fundamental things that you want to work on. Um, and then you do the meditation, we, and then you start the infusion. We also have what's called ketamine assisted therapy or CAT. And that's with an actual therapist. So we have two therapists at Aluma. They're both, uh, one's a trauma therapist. The other is just a normal talk therapist that ha has a few different modalities that he works in. Um, and that tends to be people with more complex trauma, maybe um, spectrum disorder, maybe um, personality disorders, um, or people who just feel more comfortable with a therapist in the room. So maybe a little more high control issues, like they're worried about being in that kind of uh, psychedelic space, not with somebody therapeutically there with them. Um, and then if you're on the self-guided, we partner with a group called Being True to You, which is a psychedelic integration coaching program. So they're unbelievable. So all of our clients get six sessions with a coach. And so that's when they're going to be doing their integration work. And that's typically within about 24 hours after their infusion. And these are coaches that are specialized in ketamine. We work with about five coaches um, and they, they set up and do, do their coaching work outside of that time. Okay. And for, I guess, for other uses, like, so for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, is there anything that, can ketamine also help with like visionary things, clarity, like um, more like entrepreneurship? Yeah. Yeah. So about 20% of our clients are what I call high performers. So people using it um, more as a kind of a Sorry, my cat is being crazy right now. Like, <laughs> okay. like never, it's like never this friendly. And all of a sudden she's like, call that. And we should just hang out together. I'm like, you never even want to get near us. Um, <laughs> so for those high performers, um, most people come in. I mean, the three big keys that they take away is clarity and what I call embodied confidence. So especially in the entrepreneur mindset, we make so many decisions all day. We almost get like de decision fatigue <laughs> and what this, and then at some point you're like, am I, is this the right decision? Like it's so many, it's like, is this the right decision? Are we going the right way? You know, are we supposed to pivot, blah, blah, blah. And so what ketamine can really help with, and I think, again, this is really tapping back into source is like helping you get back into alignment with what you're doing and why you're doing it so that you can come from that piece, place of alignment to make decisions. And so much confidence comes with that. The other thing it really helps with, with that group is by lowering background stress and anxiety for most um, because most entrepreneurs and high performers are rattling relatively high. When you release that, your creativity skyrockets. And so that can be super helpful, especially if you're in a space where you need to be kind of innovative and, you know, pivoting or figuring out what your next path is. Like if you're high, kind of functioning at high stress, you're actually not going to do as well as if we can drop your stress level. So we have a lot of pr like programmers and kind of tech guys that come in 
um, that are really using this as kind of a personal development tool. And, and then understanding, you know, I'm really, I can, you know, work with a lot of entrepreneurs personally, and your trauma is going to come up. I've yet to meet an entrepreneur that doesn't have trauma. We get into being our own people because we don't want to work with other people. And there's root cause behind that. And it will become your Achilles heel at some point in your business. And you will sabotage what you're doing if you don't actually deal with your trauma. And so that's, that's a big one. And that's hard for some really high performers because they don't want to like tell, you know, I don't have anxiety. I just can't sleep. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, we can call it whatever you want. You want to call it stress disorder. Okay. I'll call it stress disorder. You have anxiety just, <laughs> but that's just, that's just funny, funny languaging. High performers don't want to be labeled which is interesting. And it's like, so we have to play some funny, you know, word games with them about like, okay, we won't call it that. So you'll feel okay about it. But at some point you're going to have to reconcile that you're, you're anxious and your dad not thinking you were good enough is probably the reason you started the business. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess for someone that's brand new to psychedelics and just like goes into this space, what would you like, I guess, what can you offer them about dealing with this kind of trauma if it can be scary? Well, the, I always think ketamine is amazing starter psychedelic. Like if you're interested in exploring psychedelics, the reason ketamine is good is number one, it's in a medical clinic. You know exactly what you're getting. You literally have a paramedic staring at you. It's like the safest hour of your day. Second, it's short acting. You're in and out of the clinic in 90 minutes amazing and it's hyper controlled so we use what's called an iv pump so we slowly give you the medicine at a very specific rate over that time period what that allows us to do though is to slow it down stop it we can pull you out of it we can start it again <laughs> you can leave you know like you can say no at 15 minutes and walk out the door like it's so controllable and no other psychedelic allows you to do that. Most psychedelics, minimum five, three to five hours, if not 12, 10 to 12, whatever you take, you're in for the ride. <laughs> they, there's no eject button. And so it's a really good space. If you feel like I want to explore psychedelics, but I'm a little nervous. And then if you feel open after you've had this experience, then it's a great thing to be like, okay, understand what, surrender is which is one of the main lessons that psychedelics teach you is like how do you surrender and let go and so now that you feel comfortable in that space now it's a good time to explore other tools is it psilocybin do you want to try mdma for more kind of heart connection do you want to jump off the deep end and go aya route i mean you know you want to meet god and do some dmt i mean there's all kinds of different ways so many cool tools to explore but this one is 100 legal <laughs> short acting and very controlled. And so for many people, that's a great place for to start. And on the thing about, you know, being kind of nervous to explore the space is we start out really, really slow. And so it's the first dose is based on your weight. It's relatively low for most people. And then we customize your care plan from there. So that's customized based on what your outcome is. And also, again, what your feedback is. And in the end, you're in control of your experience. We will suggest clinically, like, this is where we think you would go next. We won't let you go, you know, 
out of clinical range, but then we'll always check in with you and say, how are you feeling? Do you want to, we would suggest you would go up. Do you feel like that's the right thing? And so we never put people in a space where they don't feel like they're ready or prepared or have the, have the kind of, if they're not ready to go into. Yeah. Well, this is awesome. And I feel like, um, do you, I guess for cost wise, what people listening, like, what can they expect? Like how much does ketamine therapy cost? Yeah. So in general, like at Aluma, our pricing is $3,000 for a series of six infusions. So that comes out to $500 an infusion. We don't do one-off infusions, So you can't just come in for one. It is a process. So, um, so that's, that's kind of standard. We're on kind of the high side of standard. There are places that are a little more economical than we are. Um, a lot of them do what's called IM. So that's an injection as opposed to IV. Um, that's a, it's a very different experience how you, how it's, how you feel. Um, and it's also not as controlled. It's kind of a choice though. It's, it's an option. Um, Sadly, ketamine for mental health isn't covered by insurance at this point, but because we're a medical clinic, a lot of the other services we offer of the day of your infusion are covered. So like your visit is covered. The, us putting the IV in your arm is covered. <laughs> us giving you your nausea medicine is covered, but the ketamine itself isn't covered. So most people, we give what's called a super bill for them to file an out-of-network claim if you have insurance, and most people get between 30 and 40% back in reimbursement which is significant. Um, and so, and then we also do payment plans. Um, the biggest thing is if you're not in Austin and you're looking for a ketamine clinic, there's kind of a few things that you want to make sure that you're asking when you go in. Um, ketamine kind of exploded about three years ago and there's about 400 clinics nationally. And just like every business, there are really great people and there are people that I'm sure are, are trying to do their best, but this is, you need to be mindful when choosing a clinic because you're going into a very vulnerable state and you want to make sure that you're fully supported. Um, and so the number one thing I ask <laughs> is, do the people that own the clinic and work at the clinic, have they ever done ketamine? Because you would be shocked at how many people own a ketamine clinic that have never done ketamine ever. And I just do not think it's a good space to be in, to be with people who don't understand what you're going through. The second is personalized dosing and understanding their dosing protocol. So making sure that they're not just having this cookie cutter system, like everybody gets the exact same amount <laughs> all the time. Like that kind of is another process that people go through. Um, and then really understanding how you're gonna get cared for. So who's gonna be in the room? Are you gonna have a private room? I find that important. Some people are doing now like group rooms, just like everything. I think that's a little odd, but to each their own. Um, and then I would always say, go to visit the space before you start, because you, again, you're going into a very, very emotional place and you need your nervous system to be able to relax so that it can heal. If you're in an amplified state, it's almost impossible for your nervous system to relax. So you need to feel good in the space and with the people. So make sure that you do that nervous system check. And I know that seems silly for some people, but it really is important to feel very safe um, prior to starting. And 
in the end, ketamine is a tool. It's not going to fix you. Everything is integration. So you need to be working with somebody, whether that be a therapist or a coach, um, but doing it on your own, you're just not going to get enough out of as much as you could out of it. And this is a pretty big investment for people. And so it's worth spending the money and taking the time to get as much out of it as possible so that it'll last long-term. You can do it by yourself and you'll get a lot of the symptom relief, but if you don't actually put action behind this new way of being, it won't last long-term and that's the goal. And so for y'all, you mentioned like that six coaching sessions, is that included in the 3000 or? Yeah. Yeah, that's included. Yeah, so you get six 30-minute coaching sessions included. Um, and then most people, I would say about more than half of our clients end up signing on long-term with their coaches because they really love them. And that's kind of our goal is we always say this is a minimum of a six-month time frame for you to really understand what the changes are going to be, if not a year. And that's not a year with us, but that is a year of you focusing on your healing so that it lasts long-term. This isn't some kind of short-term fix, even though the initial sessions is only a month, it really will take you months to repattern, especially things that you've been doing for, for your whole life. <laughs> it takes some time. And I know everybody wants it to be like, 30 day challenge and a whole new person that I'm sorry, it's not reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is amazing. Thank you so much for coming on here. And I guess, yeah. Is there anything else that you'd want people to know or like major takeaways? No, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I want everybody to know that it is truly possible to fundamentally change yourself, no matter how old you are. I think we get stuck in the idea that this is who we are and this is how it's going to be. And that is just not, that's, that is a lie that your old self is telling you so that you don't have to do the work. So true. Thank you, Allie. This has been awesome. Of course. No, thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. And where can people find you if they want to find more information about Aluma? Yeah, they can find us on all the social medias. Um, we're at Aluma. Aluma is spelled I-L-L-U-M-M-A. Most people want to put one M. It's two M's. M-M-A. Um, and then I'm Allie Waddell, kind of everywhere. So people can find me too. Amazing. Yay, Allie. Well, thank you so much again. Of course. Thank you.